Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hi, everybody out in Shelterland. I'm Dr. Lucy Kalanithi. I'm an internist at Stanford, and I'm the host of the program today. This is a joint presentation from the Commonwealth Club and the Jewish Community Center of San Francisco. And the Commonwealth Club has suspended in-person programming for the moment, but we're hosting special virtual events like this one. And you can find out more at commonwealthclub.org. Today's program is part of a series addressing the impacts of COVID-19 on our community and on society at large. And it's supported by the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative and a collaborative of local funders and donors. And we're very grateful for them. We hope you might consider joining them. And if you want to, you can donate online or text donate to 415-329-4231. We also encourage you to like, subscribe, and share our programs with other people you think would enjoy them. And it's my pleasure now to welcome and introduce Dr. Vivek Murthy, who was the 19th Surgeon General of the United States. He's the author of Together, The Healing Power of Human Connection in a Sometimes Lonely World, which was released in April and became an instant New York Times bestseller. Congratulations. He received his bachelor's degree from Harvard, his MD and MBA degrees from Yale. He completed internal medicine residency at Brigham and Women's Hospital and joined the faculty at Harvard Medical School. He's co-founded several organizations, including Doctors for America, which advocates for equitable, high-quality, and affordable health care. He was appointed by President Barack Obama as the 19th Surgeon General, the first Indian American Surgeon General, and the youngest Surgeon General. During his tenure, he led initiatives to tackle our country's most urgent public health issues, including the opioid crisis, climate change, and loneliness, which became the subject of this new book. And in the pages of this book together, Dr. Murthy makes the case that human connection is our evolutionary birthright and that loneliness is a public health concern. His writing is fascinating. It's humane. It's underpinned both by science and by the profound truth that each of us is worthy of love. So to everybody who's listening, Welcome and welcome to you, Dr. Vivek Murthy. I'm so glad to be with you. Thank you, Lucy. It's so nice to be here with you. And thank you for being here to have this conversation about the book. Yeah, totally. I'm so nervous. I actually, I don't know <laughs> if you remember the only time that I met you in person. I was so nervous. It was on an airplane. Do you remember that? I remember yeah. this. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, it was in 2016 and I was, um, doing the book tour for my late husband's book, When Breath Becomes Air. And I was flying around the country doing a couple of um, presentations. And I think I had, we were a few years behind you at Yale Med. So we started in 2003. I think that's the year that you had just graduated. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then I had become aware of you over time and was like tweeting my senators during your confirmation hearings oh. for the, for Surgeon General. And then was aware that you were doing emotional well-being as part of your tenure as Surgeon General, working on loneliness. And I was just like, this is so dreamy that a Surgeon General is doing this. It's amazing. And then I was walking down the aisle of this airplane and out of the corner of my eye, I actually thought initially you were a pilot because like, <laughs> oh, like a pilot sitting in coach or whatever, because you were wearing your Surgeon General outfit, you know, like the you're in charge of the U.S. Public Health Service Commission Corps or something. And, um, and then I was like, I've got to go talk to him. I have to say something. 
and my mouth was like quivering. I was like, extremely <laughs> nervous, but you were so kind. And I'm so glad to talk with you again today. And hopefully you'll be kind again. And I, I know for sure that you will. So anyway, thank you. <laughs> no, that's that. Thank you. And I, I will tell you, and um, I, I've shared this with a few others before that it's very common for people to have mistaken me for an airline pilot when I was Surgeon General. So it wasn't just you. Uh, it happened to a lot of people. Uh, in fact, I remember getting on the plane once and I was standing in line waiting, you know, to, to get in. I just stepped over the threshold uh, and a woman who was right in front of me looks, turns around and she said, oh, sir, why don't you go, go first? And I said, no, I'm happy to wait my turn. She said, well, we can't fly the plane without you. And I said, oh my gosh. But that happened probably once a week when I was Surgeon General. Hilarious. <laughs> And it's because, like, what's the, what is that um, uniform for? Like, can you tell us about that? Yes, actually. So the United States Public Health Service, uh, which is one of the uniformed services in the U.S. government, is overseen uh, by the Surgeon General. And it stands alongside the other uniformed services, such as the Navy, the Coast Guard, the Air Force, the Army. And the, the, Navy, the Navy and the U.S. Public Health Service have a very similar uniform, and they also have the same rank system that they use. Uh, and it has to do with the origins uh, of the public health services initially being a service attended uh, to merchant seamen uh, and to make sure that they were not bringing illness into the country. Uh, but that's where the uniform comes from. And the officers who are part of it are include over 6,500 doctors and nurses and physical therapists and public health engineers and pharmacists. And they're all people who have dedicated their lives to improving public health around the country. So we deploy them during times of emergency as well, during hurricanes, during tornadoes, and during Ebola. We sent hundreds of officers to Liberia. And now during COVID-19, there are officers all across the country who are helping to run testing centers and support uh, at hospitals and other treatment centers. Sure, sure. I've been thinking about you because I keep thinking of all the books that are coming out during this time um, and how lonely and in some ways discouraging it must be for a lot of writers and artists who had planned um, exciting endeavors during this time and now can't be sharing it in as public a way. But then there's you who is doing a book tour about loneliness. And I imagine in many ways it's, more important than it might have even been before or just different and richer and, um, you know, just profound in new ways. And I also imagine um, the questions you're getting to be different and your experience of a book tour to be kind of unexpected. And um, can you tell us how that's going? Like where, where is that room you're sitting in and, and how, how are you doing with all of this? Well, Welcome to my office, also known as my sister's house. <laughs> I'm in Miami, Florida right now. I usually live in Washington, D.C., but uh, my parents and my sister live in Miami. This is where I grew up. And in early March, my wife and my two kids and I all came down here to Miami, uh, initially actually to take care of my grandmother, who had just fractured her hip. Uh, but then we, as things started to close down, we stayed. And so we've been here for a couple of months. And like everyone else, we are trying to figure out how to make it work. We're, on the one hand, trying to be on conference calls while potty training our two-year-old and trying to make sure our three-year-old is actually eating food, which is a harder endeavor than I ever thought it would be. Uh, and so, you know, we're trying to piece it all together. Every day is chaotic. But I do feel uh, grateful to be able to have conversations like this one uh, with people uh, around the country about a topic that I believe had 
great importance before COVID-19, topic of loneliness and social connection, that I think has taken on an even greater significance in this time of physical separation. Uh, so, you know, I have found that uh, there's a greater hunger as people experience this distancing uh, from one another. And it's not just actually the physical distancing. There's something else that's happening that's, uh, I think, making us at times feel separate from each other, and that's fear. It's the fear that we, we, we look at other people now, especially people we don't know. So many people tell me that they're wondering, does that person have COVID-19? Could they put me at risk? We've been told to behave as if everyone is infected just to protect ourselves. Um, but we also have to remember that even the best of guidance can have side effects. And it doesn't mean that we shouldn't take the guidance. It just means that we have to be aware of those side effects so that we understand how it affects us and so that we can manage that properly. But I think what we're realizing now is that if we don't do anything differently, we just allow things to go as they will, then we potentially are at risk of, as I think of it, a social recession, a deepening of loneliness and a straining of social ties that may accompany uh, the economic recession that we're faced with. I don't think that's the path we have to go down, uh, but that is a risk I worry about in a time like this. Can you talk more about that? Because you wrote about this, I think, in The Atlantic, right, with your wife, Dr. Alice Chen, and you wrote a piece about sort of coining this term social recession, um, you know, as an analog to economic recession during COVID-19. Um, can you talk about what that, what you meant by that? And yeah, what you meant by that. And then, and then maybe um, what you, what you would hope for in terms of solutions that each of us can be working on. Yeah. Well, you know, I, and I wasn't the one who coined the term economic recession, although I found it to be a, uh, a thoughtful and appropriate term, given the, the profound impact that a weakening of our connections can have. Did Alice coin it the, or somebody else? No, it was somebody else. In fact, I think I first heard the term from Ezra Klein, mm, uh, okay. the founder of Vox Media, uh, who's brilliant and always thoughtful. Um, and so, you know, so the, but the reason I think that term is appropriate is because... Um, if we understand just the role that human connection plays in our life, uh, if we look at the science behind loneliness that tells us that people who struggle with loneliness have a greater risk of heart disease, a greater risk of dementia and depression, of anxiety, and even premature death, what we quickly start to realize is that whether or not we're connected to other people has profound consequences to our health. But it actually goes well beyond that. It turns out that how connected we feel in the workplace has a profound impact on how engaged we are, how productive we are, how creative we are in the workplace. It turns out that when our kids are feeling lonely and disconnected in school, that it affects their performance and their learning. And even as a society more broadly, if we think about the state of our public dialogue, I've met very few people who think that the state of our politics and dialogue is healthy right now. Um, we have a lot to be worried about, but even there, our ability to talk to each other, to really dialogue and listen to each other is impaired when we're disconnected from each other. Because when you don't have some sort of relationship or understanding or common regard for another person, it is actually very difficult to listen to them. And if you can't listen, you can't dialogue. If you can't dialogue, then you can't come together to address the big problems that we're facing, whether that's climate change or whether it's violence in our communities or whether it's structural inequalities that still persist. And so that's actually why this issue is so important, because it turns out that so much of our life 
is built on a foundation of human connection. And when that connection is weak, it threatens everything from our workplaces and schools to our health and our politics. And that's why I think the term social recession is so is appropriate because it is a profound effect. Um, but the flip is also true, which is that when we focus on social connection, it turns out that that is extraordinary potential to transform our experience of life. And I found in the writing of this book and in, in researching and talking to, uh, to people about their stories that while we've had social connection around for millennia, we've largely left it on the table in the modern age as a powerful resource that needs to be cultivated and prioritized and paid attention to. We've moved on to other things that can enhance our performance, if you will, in our health, like technology, medical devices, medications themselves. And all those are important. They have their place. But my worry is that they have slowly and insidiously displaced our relationships on the priority list, and they've fallen further and further down. And as that has happened, our connections to each other have been weaker, and we're seeing the fallout of that. So this is what's so interesting, right, is that as a former surgeon general and physician, like this is not something that we learned in medical school. I don't think anybody ever said the word loneliness. And I am so curious because, you know, everything you're saying resonates so deeply and seems sort of like profoundly true and also in plain sight at the same time, right? But what you're saying is that it's sort of hidden um, uh, or or not put into practice in the forefront in the way we might need to, need to, need to do, um, in order to thrive. Can you tell me how, as Surgeon General, you ended up coming across, um, loneliness as something that ties together? It sounds like almost all of your other <laughs> interests and missions because, um, because everyone I mentioned to, you know, guess who I get to speak with and here's what, He's worked on, everyone says, aha, yes, yes, that is a huge problem. Um, anyway, long story, long question. How did you, how did you uncover this? Well, actually, because of exactly what you said at the end, because when I began, became Surgeon General, I, I began with this listening tour where I just went to communities all across the country and sat in living rooms and town halls. Just being totally open. Centers. Like that was. Yeah. I mean, it came about in an interesting way, which, um, I mean, which I don't often say, but I'll, I'll share with you is, uh, you know, when I, when I was confirmed and I was confirmed after a long, uh, and challenging, uh, confirmation process, let's say, uh, Hashtag was top doc now. <laughs> I cannot believe you remember that. <laughs> um, what happened is that first day I started, uh, there was a team from the Department of Health and Human Services that came to meet with me, and it was a communications team and the political team. And they said, look, now that you've been confirmed after this lengthy, lengthy confirmation effort, we should just get you on every major media network so you can announce your agenda to the country, tell people what your plans are, what you're going to do. And I was, you know, I thought to myself, I said, I have an agenda. I have put together a priority list. I had to present that to the, to the U.S. Senate during my confirmation hearing. I feel good that it's backed by data and experience. Which was like what? Like what were a few things on that? Interesting. Uh, Yeah. So obesity was a major issue uh, on that list. Um, Substance use disorders and the opioid epidemic were uh, important concerns. Uh, Domestic violence was on that list. There there were a number of issues that would, if you heard them, you'd say, that makes sense. You know, that that sounds good. Uh, 
but you know, it's some, it's something inside. Sometimes you get an instinct that tells you to go down uh, a different path. And I remember going home after that first day and looking at this very thoughtful communications plan that they had given me and I was going through it and it, none of it felt right. Wow. And I just felt, uh, I was like, you know, I don't want to go on Good Morning America or on CBS this morning or talk to these big newspapers and tell them what my agenda is because it just somehow something didn't feel real about it. And I said, let's just, what if we did no media? I said, what if we actually just went on the road and talked to people and just asked them the simple question, how can we help? And just see what they say. And it reminded me of the lessons, uh, Lucy, that our professors at Yale taught us. Totally. Right? Yeah which is they would often say that one of the biggest mistakes we make as doctors is we assume and we yeah, interrupt Yeah, it's like patients. bringing tears to my eyes. It's fabulous. Yeah, totally. <laughs> but I also, also remember people like August Fortin and Peggy Bia, you know, our professors from that time would often say, just ask a question and then let it sit. Yeah, sit there. Learn from the person that you're meant to yeah. serve. And I thought maybe that principle should apply here too. So we spent the first few months just traveling around the country and asking people that question. And some of the stories I heard were not shocking, although they were deeply informative. There were stories about opioid use disorder. There were parents who would tell me tragic stories about losing their children to overdoses. Uh, there were women who would tell me about uh, their fears uh, around domestic violence and their concerns about intimate partner violence. And there were parents who would also talk about their kids and how they were growing up in neighborhoods with it's so much violence that they worried that their child wouldn't come home the next day because they heard of so many children uh, who were being shot and killed on the streets and in their neighborhoods. These were terribly sad and concerning stories. But what I did not expect to hear were these threads of loneliness that wove their way through so many of these stories. Uh, people would not come up to me and say, I'm Vivek, I'm Lucy, I'm, I'm lonely. But they would say things like this. They would say, you know, I feel like I have to deal with all of these problems on my own. I feel like if I disappear tomorrow, nobody would care or I feel invisible. And I was hearing this from moms and dads. I was hearing this from college students. I was hearing this from farmers, from people in remote fishing villages in Alaska. I was even hearing this from members of Congress who would tell me this in closed doors when their staff wasn't there. One of them even said to me, I remember, he said, I know that you want to do something to address loneliness for the country, and I applaud you for it. But he said, at some point, I hope you get around to addressing loneliness in Congress. Because he said, even though um, we may not be a sympathetic uh, face to most people, he said, a lot of us feel isolated. We feel we're under the microscope all the time. We're away from our families here in D.C., and we feel alone. And it affects our ability to work with each other. And it was you know, he wasn't saying that because he was looking for sympathy, but no, but, but it's what like he, he didn't feel seen either, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, what he was describing was, and what he was helping me understand, as so many people did around the country, is that loneliness is a common human condition. As much as we might feel that it's something to be ashamed of, as much as our culture may lead us to believe that if you're lonely, you're not likable or that you're broken in some way, the truth is that all of us at some point in our lives feel lonely. And loneliness itself is actually not a disease or a disorder. It's actually a natural signal that our body sends to us, just like hunger or thirst, when we're lacking something that we need for our survival, which is human connection. The challenge we run into is when that loneliness persists for a long time, just as if we didn't respond to hunger or thirst with food or water, and it persisted, we would run into physical health problems. And this is what we see with loneliness as well. So that's, I mean, to just to answer, tie it into your question, I mean, this is why 
I decided to focus on loneliness because the more I studied it, the more I realized that loneliness is extraordinarily common, but it's also extraordinarily consequential to our health. And when I came out of office and I was thinking, what could I do? What could I contribute to that would help to address the deeper root cause of so many of the other issues that I worked on from addiction to violence to chronic disease? I kept coming back to this topic of loneliness and social connection. I love that you followed your gut on that. It's a big deal to do that. And I can't imagine it was too easy to go back and say, no, I'm going to do none of your media, <laughs> you know, until I know what I, until I know what I really feel. It's beautiful. Um, well, I think I gave a lot of people, um, I think I stressed out a lot of I'm people sure you did. two and a half years <laughs> in the department because I, uh, it, you know, I may not have, I just certainly didn't have all the knowledge about everything, but one thing I, I had learned to do was to, to try to trust my gut. You know? So when it would tell me to do things like this, and there were many other instances like this over the next two and a half years, I would try to follow it. But you know, sometimes that meant ruffling some feathers. That's great. I like it though. And I think one of the other things that I love about your leadership, um, in addition to following your gut, is just um, you've been really transparent about your own experiences in a way that I think is really sort of um, helps melt away stigma, you know, even in the things you just described, I think there's this real connection between being lonely and feeling like you're the only one who feels that way, or there's something wrong with you because you feel like that you're unlovable because you feel like that. Um, and so just the idea of a recognizing a very common thread and then naming it as so common, right? I mean, it's something like a third of Americans or something. I mean, you can tell us. And also um, then having like a male physician stand up and talk about loneliness. I feel like you've sort of pulled off the great loneliness reframe in a way that is actually, you know, um, I really think helps a lot of people. Um, could you... Uh, could you share some of your own experience with loneliness? Because you do that in your book so nicely, weaving your own experience as a physician, as a person, as a child into the story. And I think, you know, that's one of the things that makes great memoir is to take a very singular experience and then turn it into a universal story. Um, and I think people are really interested in your own, um, your own experience, you know, in a way that that you share and use that in part of your leadership. Could you, could you read us into your deepest childhood <laughs> painful moments, if you don't mind? Sure. Well, my story turns out is not, certainly not unique. And it is, uh, I found as I've, as I shared it, as I've shared it over the, over the last several months and many people will come up to me and say, that was my childhood too. Um, but what happened is when I was in elementary school, I, I was really shy. And I wanted to hang out with other kids, but because I was so shy, I found it hard to approach them. And the more I held back, the more excluded I became. And it became a self-fulfilling prophecy, but it also became a self-reinforcing cycle. And so the lonelier I was, the lonelier I became, and on and on it went. It got to the point where I, I didn't want to come to school anymore. I remember faking stomach aches so that I wouldn't have to go in. I remember this pit in my stomach when my mother would pull up uh, in the car in front of school and drop me off. And this I is like elementary like, oh. school. This is elementary school. Yeah. This is elementary school. It's like around it's second, third, fourth grade. And it went, it was Cutie. all much of elementary school. <laughs> um, 
and the thing is, I mean, and the most painful time of the day for me was lunchtime when I would walk into the cafeteria and not know if there was somebody to sit next to. It wasn't easy and it certainly impacted my self-esteem, which was already shaky, you know, at that point. And I never really talked to my parents about it. You know, the irony is that I was deeply loved at home and I knew it. I felt this real sense of belonging at home. I had no question that my parents' love for me was unconditional. Uh, I, I love being at home, but school was a very different matter. But I didn't tell them because I was ashamed. You know, and I even remember this one time it came up uh, with my father. He had noticed that I wasn't hanging out with other kids on the playground, that I was just standing by myself. And he said, why are you standing by yourself? How come you're not playing with other kids? And I, I, I didn't know what to say. I was just silent. And he kept asking me and I, I still didn't say anything because I was just feeling so ashamed in that moment. But it was also interestingly a moment where I realized that the idea of a child being lonely was very foreign to him because he had grown up in India as my mother had. And even though my father grew up in an incredibly poor family in a very poor village uh, in, in South India, even though they didn't have, for example, even slippers to wear until he was 14 or 15 years old, and they had like one or two pencils that they would share between all six kids that had to last the whole year, even though the poverty was dire, they were rich in social connections. And the idea of being lonely was just not something mm, that came up. Wouldn't even occur to him. Right, because there were so many layers of connection yeah. with your family. There was your extended family. There were your, the school was sort of an extension of the village. All the village families knew each other and had been there for generations. You were part of something, and that was hard to escape. And so it was a very foreign sort of a feeling uh, or, or notion that uh, I would be lonely in school. And so anyway, I never told them really much about my experiences. But the truth is, even though that loneliness dissipated as I got older and as I gained some more confidence and began makes, made some friends, it reappeared in many other times in my life during adulthood when I was in part going through major transitions and I didn't have a community in school or in training, but I was pursuing a path that was different from most people around me. So I didn't have people to share that with. Uh, that happened after residency training. It also actually happened, uh, cropped up again in my life during my time as Surgeon General, uh, ironically. I was never surrounded by more people than when I was Surgeon General. I always had people around me, staff, partners, members of the public. Right. So many Fancy people. uniform. <laughs> well, I mean, just because it was part of the job, not because I, I was special or anything. <laughs> um, but despite that, I only mentioned that because it, it was just a great example of how being surrounded by people does not guarantee that you're Right, you can be lonely in a crowd. Um, you can absolutely. And you can be not lonely at all with just a couple of people around you if you have strong connections to them. And what I had done, the mistake I had made when I was Surgeon General is I had convinced myself that I don't know how much time I have here, so I've got to make the most of every moment here to make sure that we have maximal impact. And, you know, you can say, well, you know, that's good. You want to use your time well, et cetera. But all of these things are good only up until a point. The question is, what are you willing to sacrifice, you know, for that end? And I realized that what I had done is I had allowed uh, my relationships to slide. I hadn't kept in touch with close friends. Even the time I had with family, I had allowed technology and work to creep in to dinner time, to bedtime routines with the kids. And it just, it was, it ended up isolating me further and further at a challenging time in my life where I actually needed uh, more and more human connection. So that was a, a tough time. And I came out uh, of government feeling not just a bit burned out, but also just feeling really alone. Wow. Like I didn't have a, 
a sense of community. And it took me quite a while to climb out of that hole. It took me a while to recognize, in fact, that loneliness is an important part of what I was dealing with. So one of the questions we've gotten from the audience coming in is, um, how did you figure out that you needed help with that? And how, and how did you go about getting it or um, getting through that lonely time? Yeah, well, I was fortunate that I have um, a wonderful wife, uh, my wife, Alice, and uh, incredible parents and sister and brother-in-law. And they, they stood by me. They supported me. So I knew I could reach out to them. But there's a part of me which didn't want to burden them. I didn't want to worry my parents. Like the reason I never talk to my parents now about my experiences of loneliness as a child is not because I'm embarrassed anymore. But it's that I don't want to worry them. I don't want them to feel like they failed me somehow, that they didn't pick up on something that was incredibly painful to me as a child. Um, but in that moment, you know, even just being around them, you know, after I left government was, was helpful, but, you know, in, in the book, I talk about three types of loneliness. Yes, please. Yeah. It matters is, here, right? Yeah. This is exactly why it matters because the three types of loneliness I describe are intimate loneliness, which is our connections with confidants, people who know us and who we know who we're absolutely comfortable around. I talk about relational loneliness, which happens when we are, are missing friends, so people we may spend weekends or evenings with, who we might go out to dinner with, enjoy fun times with. And the third is collective loneliness. And that's when we lack a sense of community, a lack, of, a lack a sense of shared identity that may come from a common cause that we work on, a company that we're passionate about, that we work for, a faith organization that we're a part of. And the reason that these three types of loneliness are important to understand is that we need all three types of connections, intimate connections, friendships, as well as these community connections. And when we don't have one of them, we can feel lonely, which explains why you can be in a, in a wonderful marriage with an amazing, amazing partner and still feel lonely if you don't have the friendships and community connections that you need. And if you don't understand these three types of loneliness, you might be led to believe if your spouse is lonely, that somehow that's a reflection on you. That maybe you're not providing them with what you, they need. Maybe you fail them as a spouse, but that's not necessarily the case. Um, and so while I had this wonderful connections with my wife and my, my family, I was missing a sense of community. I was missing the friendships uh, that I had in years past, but that had dwindled as I had neglected them during my time in government. And that's like why, um, like now you would understand that your parents hadn't failed you, right? And it's so interesting too, because I wonder when you were talking about your dad not seeing your loneliness, partly because maybe he, he had such a dissimilar experience as a child in this village in India, couldn't comprehend of a lonely child. But at the same time, he also probably couldn't comprehend of you as unlovable. Whereas you yourself might have been feeling like, people don't like me, you know, and it, that also wouldn't compute. It's not something he would ever imagine to be true, you know? No, that's a really good insight. I think that's right. So have you talked to your parents about this loneliness? Obviously they've read your book. <laughs> you tweeted a picture of your dad sitting there reading your book, which I, you know. Yeah, no, I, you know, we haven't talked about it. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> and maybe I'm sure we will. I wouldn't, if it came up, I wouldn't mind. Sure. Um, but but we it's interesting we we haven't talked about yeah. it. um the the book it's really interesting we my parents have read segments of the book they're working through the book like right now and it, it's just sort of funny I, I don't know I'm trying to think of how to actually explain this because it's it sounds a little peculiar but 
even though the book is all about loneliness and a lot about my personal experiences, even though my parents and my sister play quite prominently into the book because they helped me understand so much about loneliness and they actually were my foundation for understanding the importance of human relationships from a very early age. Despite all of that, for some reason, I it just, we haven't talked about the substance uh, of the book. We've talked about the stories in it. Um, that's how it goes, we'll I think. Yeah, that's how it I goes. Think, yeah. It yeah. feels okay. <laughs> yeah. It's like the thing where it's like your spouse writes a giant thesis and you don't read it. Like, it's not like, that's not what your spouse is about to you. Right. I don't know. That's just that's me. Really <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know. That's, I'm not, sort of not surprised to hear that in a way. Uh, could you talk, so you talked about the three sort of, um, dimensions of loneliness or these facets of loneliness. Um, individual, your relationships with your friends, and then sort of the sense of collective community or purpose. Talk about why your relationship with yourself also matters for in loneliness. And could you like, as a piece of that, speak to about the difference between loneliness and solitude? Because this is a huge, important portion of your book is, is, um, is thinking about the relationship with the self. Um, that was very fascinating to me. Hmm. No, I'm glad you asked because, you know, in many ways, the what the book became, and it was a work that evolved, you know, over the two years or so that uh, that I engaged in this project. But what it became was really a call to action, if you will, for us to build more connected lives, but also to build a more connected world. And one of the things I realized through so many of the amazing people I met along the way was that our ability to connect with other people is really grounded in our ability to connect deeply with ourself. And what does it mean to be connected with yourself? Well, it means to accept yourself, to know that you have value and you have self-worth. It means to be grounded and to be centered. It means to be at peace. When we approach other people you know, from a place of centeredness, when we know our worth, when we walk into a conversation, we actually get more out of those interactions because we're not trying to be somebody else. We're not trying to say what we think the other person wants to hear. We're not spending half of our time anxious about how the last joke we made was actually interpreted. We show up comfortable in our own skin and more able also to listen. Because also when we're preoccupied with how we're coming across, it's actually hard for us to listen to what the other person is, is saying. So this is why our connection to self is so important. And solitude is an important part of this because often it's moments of quiet in our life when we're by ourselves, but in a, in a happy, joyful, or peaceful context, which is what makes it separate and different from loneliness. It's those moments which can be replenishing. Those can be the moments when we recenter. What's really interesting to me, and I think you may resonate with, and those who are listening may relate to this if you have a meditation practice or haven't ever ever done any sort of breath exercise, is you know that it just takes a couple of breaths to actually shift your energy and to make you feel more settled. So even right now, if we were to just close our eyes for a moment and take a deep breath in and then exhale... That one moment, which took less than 10 seconds, can just subtly shift how we feel. 
And solitude is important because it has the power to do that. And it's not about how much time we spend in solitude, right? But even a few seconds, a few minutes of solitude can have that powerful recentering effect. The challenge we have in our life now, Lucy, so many of us, myself included, is that those moments of solitude have evaporated. And they've evaporated in part because we live really busy lives and we're hyper-scheduled. They've also evaporated because actually of our smartphones. Because before, when you met a friend at a restaurant and they were a few minutes late, that few minutes might be time that you just spend reflecting and thinking and just being. But now you can just pull out your phone and be quote-unquote efficient, right? You can clear out a few messages from your inbox. You can see what friends are saying on social media. You can check the news. Um, and while that has utility from one perspective, we have to just understand the cost. And the cost is, is the white space in our life has disappeared. You know, we have lost that precious solitude that we was, we so often need. There's one last thing I want to mention about connection to self, because I think this is such an important point. Connection to self is in part about us knowing that we have value and self-worth. And to me, that requires knowing what defines a human being's value and what society tells us in many different ways is that our value as a human being is tied to how successful we are. And our success in turn is tied to our ability to acquire one of three things, either power, wealth, or fame. And whenever someone hits one of those three categories or all three, we say they've made it. They're successful. They're someone to emulate and look up to. But the reality is that our worth as a human beings is much more intrinsic. It's not determined by the size of our bank account. It's actually determined by our intrinsic ability to give and receive love. That's what determines our worth as a human being. And the most clear way that we experience that love is through relationships. And I look at my, my kids my three-year-old and my two-year-old, and I see just how naturally they give and receive love. You know, I'm sure you see that with Katie as well. And all of us are born naturally to do that. Stuff happens to us along the way that layers on us, that makes us worry about expressing our true feelings, that makes us think that maybe emotions and love are signs of weakness. Uh, especially if you're a guy, you start to uh, taking the message that being a real man is actually about clamping down on your emotions, not being affected by other things. Certainly not saying I love you uh, to someone you know who's not a romantic partner. Um, but we take in these messages and it stifles our ability to do that, which gives us our greatest source of value as a human being, which is to love and to be loved. And the reason I think this is so important and I wanted to mention it is that if we don't anchor ourselves in that intrinsic source of worth, we will constantly chase work, wealth, and reputation. And as we, as we worship at the altar of those false gods, we'll find that we can never truly find lasting security and happiness. That's why you find so many people who are wealthy and who are powerful, who feel profoundly unhappy. Uh, I've met many of these people. Um, they're, they're wonderful human beings, but they're very, very unhappy because they have lost relationships in their pursuit of wealth and, and power and fame. Yeah. Thank you for the moment. Um, taking a breath, by the way, I noticed right before we got onto this conversation online, you closed your eyes. Were you, were you doing the same kind of thing? This was like right before was, the video yeah. went live. Yeah. Oh, I didn't yeah. Know you 
It was such a nice, I mean, it's like, this is such a nice, um, it's like you leading again. I love it. Thank you for doing that. It's actually something I started doing when I was Surgeon General, because I would, um, you know, I, I had to do a lot of public events, right? And because the days were were packed, I would often be on phone calls in the car. I'd be like, you know, working with staff on, you know, on other like you know initiatives we were running right up until the moment when I got on stage. And I realized after the first few events like this that I was, my mind was frazzled when I was on stage because I was dealing with so many things and literally just jumping onto the stage. And so I I made it a practice after that to just keep at least two minutes before. And I walked onto stage to just be by myself. My team was always very gracious. They, they knew that that two minutes was what I needed. That was my time. Yeah. So I would just, I would just walk and I would just breathe and I would just try to think about who I wanted to be in that moment, you know, what I wanted to channel. And the thing I also often kept coming back to that I kept recentering myself on is that, and I would ask the universe, like, please enable me, empower me to go up there and to be a vessel for love. Uh, allow me to feel the love of the people that I'm engaging with. Allow me to to bring the love that I know I have inside of me uh, to them and let us enjoy this connection that we're going to have for the next few minutes. Um, and that was always, that became my practice from thereafter. You said before, do you say I love you to people who are not your intimate partner? You just said that like a few minutes ago. So when you're a guy, you're not supposed to do this. You're not supposed to do. This. You're certainly not supposed to say "I love you" to somebody. And then you just mentioned love and this kind of mantra that you're saying, almost like a form of a prayer, right? Prior to giving a talk. So I'm so curious about how you're using the word love. Yeah, <laughs> I do actually. I, I do. Um, yeah, with my closest friends. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes when we write to each other, we'll, we'll end it by saying "love you" in conversation. I just talked to a dear friend today, and. Um, when the conversation was ending, he said, you know, I'll talk to you soon. I love you. And I said, I love you too. Oh, it's Vivek. Everyone is a bit different in how they use language, you know, but what I've, and I'll be honest with you, the first, when I started doing that, it felt a little uncomfortable because, you know, like everyone else, I was brought up in a culture that was like, that's weird. You don't say I love you to people. Right. Especially you. guys. Yeah, yeah. Right, right, right. Hey, right. Dad, but, right. But I was like, you know, the people who are dearest to me, who are right. like family. Right. I love them. There's right. like no question about it. Right. right. Um, totally. Like, you know, totally. we're just explicit with each other. About it's it. <laughs> interesting because as I was sort of getting ready to talk with you, I sort of became really interested in the this question of what's the opposite of loneliness. And mm. um, and I looked it up, actually. Do you want to hear it? Because partly I was like, well, is it love? Like, is love the opposite of loneliness? And I looked it up. And one thing I thought you would think is really interesting. Where is it? Okay. This is Merriam-Webster. Hang on, where is it? They they talk. Oh yeah, here it is. So Merriam-Webster, some of the antonyms for loneliness: accompanied, attended, cheerful, society. Isn't that interesting? Society. And then I don't know if you know who Marina Keegan is, but she was this Yale student, and she wrote an essay called "The Opposite of Loneliness," literally. And she says we don't have a word for the opposite of loneliness, but if we did, I could say that's what I want in life. It's not quite loving. And it's not quite a community. It's this feeling that there are people, an abundance of people who are in this together, who are on your team when the check is paid and you stay at the table. Isn't that beautiful? So beautiful. Beautiful. And she was a young student at Yale and she wrote this essay at the end of her tenure in college saying, this is what we have right now. And now we're dispersing around the world. So how do you take that feeling with you and 
create that feeling elsewhere. And, you know, she was talking about that tension and then she actually died, uh, in a car accident, uh, really soon after writing this. And so there's sort of some poignancy to her writing this beautiful thing because she says, if we did, I could say that's what I want in life. And I sort of, it's like a lovely, terrible, like epitaph, you know, but she's sort of getting at her real values. And I think that's sort of what you've been talking through this whole, whole conversation is how do you take the thing, the things that you value the most and then actually live them. Right. You know? Yeah. And it's not, it's a struggle for all of us, I think. And I, I think in some ways, this is what life is about is about part of it's about closing the gap between our stated priorities and our lived priorities. Right. Like we, I think, almost to a T most people have asked what their top priorities are or would say other people in their life. They would name their mother or father or their spouse or their children. Um, and I think the closer we get to living a life that's consistent with those priorities, the better we feel. Uh, and I think the better we do, you know, this question about the opposite of loneliness is very interesting because I do think as human beings, one of the things I've come to learn from the stories I heard is that, is that we have a few basic needs as human beings. We all, need to be seen as who we are. We all want to know that we matter and we all want to be loved. And when we have those, when we're seen and we know that we matter and when we're loved, we don't feel lonely. We feel like we're a part of something. And it's worth for a moment talking for a sec about the power of being seen. Because, you know, there's so much emphasis in society around action and around talking. Right. So if you're a friend and you come to me and you say, gosh, I got, got this big problem, this big issue happened today, then my mind might instinctively go, okay, how can I fix Lucy's problem? That's how I'm going to help her. I'm going to fix, I'm going to fix. Um, I think this is something us guys do uh, particularly, but, but that notion of action being the source of, of meaning and value is very, very prominent in society. But I think there's so much healing in just listening and being present and witnessing. Uh, someone else. And what we're doing is not just giving them space to talk and express themselves, but we're allowing them to feel seen. And that's why the gift of our full attention is one of the most powerful and extraordinary gifts we can give to another human being. And it's why we were taught, you and me, Lucy, and so many other doctors in medical school, that even when you run out of medicines and you run out of procedures to do, you still have the ability to contribute to someone's healing just by showing up, by being present, by listening to them deeply. And I was reminded of that so often by these extraordinary people I met uh, around the world who, through their own example, were doing just that. They were healing by listening. Uh, and I think that's an important part of what helps people feel more connected and less lonely. Totally. As you know, my husband died of cancer and, and you know, being a physician like you and then having grieved after he died there were so, there's so many times in all of those experiences where there's literally nothing you can do to fix something with somebody, right? You can just, it's like, you can just sit there. And I think having experienced that in multiple ways, it is so profound to be a witness. Um, so I love that you bring up that idea of seeing. Um, let me ask a couple things that are coming through from the people who are attending. Um, so I'm just going to, I want to just answer one myself because 
after having looked it up ahead of time. So one of the people wrote, many healthcare professionals are going through extreme measures to protect their families as they treat COVID patients these days. What resources are available to them to prevent loneliness, depression, et cetera? And I just wanted to mention a few sort of really explicit resources for healthcare professionals um, to our Project Parachute and Emotional PPE, which I love. For spouses of physicians, um, there's something called the flip side life. For uh, healthcare workers, the meditation app called Headspace is free for a year. And for everybody, they have special um, meditation sets on things like loneliness itself and self-compassion, which are really helpful. For everybody, there's a crisis text line, 741741. Um that's useful in all kinds of um, social crises, including intimate partner violence, loneliness, um, uh, mental health problems. And then the Veterans Health System has an app that's free called COVID Coach, and it's for self-care and overall mental health during the pandemic. So I just wanted to mention those um, couple of things too. And then, um, and then I'll just say one other thing, which is I just wanted to mention there's a project called um, PPE Portrait Project because, um, you know, COVID is like, maybe we can talk about COVID just for a second again, Vivek, because it's so immensely lonely. Like literally everything about COVID is lonely. Everybody's isolated at home. Then there are people who are very lonely in society because they are unseen or untreated, right? Or treated with, um, treated in unjust ways. Then there are healthcare providers who are feeling lonely. You put on the PPE to treat a patient and your entire outfit that you've just put on, everything's covered except your eyes. Your whole outfit says, I don't even want to be with you, even if that's how you don't feel. And then I think so much about patients, right, who are admitted to the hospital alone with no family, um, very scared, um, and people who are delivering babies recently um, by themselves, um, so, or without a attending loved one. So um, I think this is just, um, this is such an important question. And I don't know, maybe Vivek, this has to do with the COVID question, but um, but also the general loneliness question um, that's coming through. Could you talk about um, sort of like solutions to loneliness, so to speak? Because I know you have a list um, or group of things that you think about that you recommend to people. Yeah, so there's there's a lot that I write about that in through the lens of stories of people I met that I found were powerful aids to building a more connected life. Uh, a few that I'll mention. One is to think about how we spend our time with people in two ways. One is ensuring that we are spending at least fifteen minutes, you know, a day with people we love, whether that's conferencing with them on the phone or video calling them or whether that's emailing them, simply saying, hey, I'm thinking about you. I want to know how you are. But the other piece of time is not just quantity of time, but quality of time. And here, even if we don't spend a single minute more with the people we love, if we can improve the quality of that time by reducing distraction when we talk to others, that can have a powerful impact on the quality of that conversation and how connected we feel to them. You know, I've been guilty, like many people, of calling a friend on the phone to catch up and then somehow ending up 
flipping through my inbox and refreshing my social media feed and Googling a question that just came to mind. And, oh, by, also, by the way, also of watching the, you know, the basketball game on the background. You know, like, yeah, we yeah, have yeah, the ability yeah. to do so many things at once or we have the option. It I sounds crazy say. when you say it out loud, right? It sounds crazy. It sounds totally yeah. crazy, but it's, it's, like, it's sort of the nature of our multitasking uh, hyper-scheduled lives. But the reality is we can't multitask very well. We task switch. And so even though we think we can do it well, we're not paying attention to both people or all five things at the same time. But if you've ever had the experience of having a conversation with a friend where they were fully present, where they were listening to you deeply, where you were sharing openly with them, you know just how extraordinarily powerful that can be. And five minutes of conversation when both people are fully present can be more powerful than a half hour of distracted conversation. So that's the first thing I think of is how do we optimize the quantity, but also the quantity quality of time that we spend with others. The second is how can we build opportunities to serve into our life? It turns out, and this surprised me in the writing of this book, but I found that service is a powerful antidote to loneliness. And the reason is because when we're lonely, we actually experience an elevation in threat level. And because we feel threatened and unsafe, our focus shifts inward toward ourselves. And as it lasts for a long time, loneliness can also erode our self-esteem. And we come to believe we're lonely because we're not likable. And this actually contributes to this downward spiral where loneliness begets more loneliness. But service is powerful because it breaks that cycle. It shifts the focus from someone, from ourselves to someone else but it also reaffirms for us that we have value to bring to the world. And so if we think about service in a time of COVID-19, we may not be able to go to the soup kitchen or volunteer for Habitat for Humanity, but what we can do is we can check on a neighbor to see if they're okay. We totally. can call up a friend who we knew was struggling with loneliness or with depression before this all came about. We could even have food delivered to a coworker who we know is struggling with and teleworking and homeschooling their kids. And something that I would love someone to, to do for us from time to time, but which we are now offering to, to do for our friends, is to virtually babysit. <laughs> so even <laughs> like even FaceTiming and entertaining someone's child for five minutes can be an extraordinary service. And if you just give their parents five minutes just to sit down and breathe, wow, that's the solitude I think that many parents need right now. So my point is that if you look around you, you'll find that there are so many ways and opportunities to serve because in this moment, we are all struggling with something. COVID-19 has turned our lives upside down. It's created extraordinary hardship in many people's lives, um, but it's changed all of our lives. And even though we may be in different boats, we're in the same storm. And that gives us an opportunity to reach out to other people, to ask how they're doing and to see how we can help. So if we think about these simple, simple tools, thinking about the quantity and quality of time we spend with others, thinking about how we can seek out others with ways to serve. And if we also combine that with these opportunities for a solitude that we spoke about earlier, which are so important uh, for us to ground ourselves and center ourselves and let the noise around us settle. And keep in mind, the solitude can be, it doesn't have to be a, a seven day retreat. Right? It can be a few minutes where you remember what you're grateful for, a few minutes of meditation or prayer or reading a good book. But these together can help us build a more connected life. 
And I actually think there's no better time to refocus on this than right now. Because while there is the threat of a social recession with COVID-19, there's also the opportunity for us to step back now and ask ourselves, where do relationships and people fall in our priority list? How do we want to build a people-centered life going forward? Now, Lucy, if, if I had one simple credo for this book, it would be three words. It would be put people first. Just those three words. Because when we put people first in our own lives, we make different decisions about where we put our time and our energy and our focus. When we make when we put people first as a society, then we design workplaces to support human connection. We design curricula in schools to provide children with the social emotional learning that they need to form healthy relationships. And even more broadly, when we put people first, we make it easier to dialogue with others. We design policies that truly support uh, relationships. Society looks different when people are at the center. And that's my hope, is that through this book, through all the work that all of us are doing, that we can help shift society in such a way that puts people back at the center. Because if we do that, we will not only create a healthier stronger, more resilient life for ourselves, but we will build a better world for our children and for future generations. I love it. I have to, I'm doing uh, physical therapy for my back and the physical therapist said, you really have to do it. If you, if you kind of do it, it kind of works. If you really do it, it really works. And I feel like I heard you say, put people first. I was like, yeah, 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 put people first. It's like, oh no, 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 no. If you kind of do it, it kind of works. If you really do it, it really works. I love it's that. like, I, it's beautiful. The amount that you're talking about meaning and sort of all of these layers of meaning, I, I really like Viktor Frankl's formulation about meaning in life, sort of like a connection between loneliness and meaning. He talks about how there are three sources of meaning in life, uh, work, which is like your, perp- your, um, you know, the things you do and create love, which is things like gratitude, but then also connection to other people in many ways. And then um, suffering in the way in which meaning comes from suffering. If you can persist through something or forge a meaning through something. And I feel like work and love and suffering, there's like, there's threads of things that you've spoken about in this talk, not just in love, but in also the other aspects of meaning too. It's like very, very rich across all of those. I just wanted to mention how profound this talk has felt and been. Thank you so much for being here. We just wanted to say thank you to everybody for joining. And as you know, Dr. Murthy is the author of Together, The Healing Power of Human Connection in the Sometimes Lonely World. And please support your local independent bookstore through their website, perhaps today, and order your copy. And we also want to thank, of course, in addition to the Commonwealth Club, the Jewish Community Center of San Francisco for being a partner in this. Thank you so, so much. I'm Dr. Lucy Kalanithi, and this program is adjourned. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.